Well, good morning again. Uh, as always, it is a joy and a privilege to be able to proclaim God's Word to you this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, would you turn to Matthew chapter 6? Matthew chapter 6, we're going to be in verses 25 to 34 today. And as you turn there, I want you to take a moment to think about your life. Specifically, I want you to think about the things that occupy your thoughts. What do you think about most often? What is it that you dwell on? When your eyes suddenly pop open first thing in the morning, where does your mind go? Maybe you have trouble sleeping at night sometimes because you can't turn your mind off. What are the things that are running through your head when you can't sleep? Maybe for you it's tasks. I forgot that I have this appointment tomorrow, so I need to make sure that I move this around so that everything fits together. Perhaps it's forgetfulness. Did I forget to turn off the oven again? But more often than not, your mind is probably filled with worries. What was that noise? Is that water dripping? Did a pipe burst? Does our homeowner's insurance cover that? What if it doesn't? We'll have to begin eating into our savings. What will happen? Did they just cough? That sounded pretty bad. Maybe I should check this out on WebMD. What if it's something really bad? Was that a police siren? I saw on the news that crime is up again. What is happening to this country? What if things keep trending in the same direction? Worries. We worry about our health. We worry about our jobs, about our families, about our kids, our country, our church, our finances, our future. Worrying can be paralyzing. It can be exhausting. It can cause us to lose sleep and go down rabbit trails and even get physically sick. In our passage today, Jesus speaks to our worry and our anxiety. Three times in this short passage, he says, Do not be anxious or do not worry. At first, that sounds a little bit like the old Bob Newhart skits on Mad TV, where a person walks into a counselor's office and says that they have a problem like fear or worry, and Bob says, I have two words that will fix your problem. Stop it. (laughs) But Jesus today isn't giving us a flat demand and hitting us over the head with it like a baseball bat. This is especially important when we recognize that anxiety is not only a spiritual problem, but many people, including Christians, suffer from clinical anxiety. There's a whole complexity there that we do horrible harm to when we act like it is an easy fix of just changing the way that you're thinking. We are whole persons, both body and soul united together. So we need to understand that things like anxiety are never just all in your head. But they are also never only a chemical imbalance. 
So Jesus isn't just telling us to stop it, but He is also not suggesting that we are merely victims with no agency. He doesn't say everything there is to say about anxiety here in this passage, but He does say something to us. Do not be anxious about your life. And just like He has done throughout this whole sermon, He is going to address the problem that is in our hearts. He's going to call us both to examine ourselves and more than that, to fix our eyes on the character of our Father who is in heaven. Because only He is powerful enough, only He is good enough, only He is loving enough to free us from our anxieties. But before we hear what God has to say, let us go to Him in prayer and ask that He would change us by His Word. Would you all pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we now read Your Holy Word, I ask that You would give us Your Spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we might know and love Your Son, Jesus Christ, more. Open our minds, our hearts, and our wills so that we may hear Your Word and believe it. Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. This is Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 25. Jesus says, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of the Lord. As we look at this passage today, we're going to see two things. First, we're going to see where Jesus roots this command to us. Do not be anxious. He gives three reasons for why it is possible for us to obey that command. And then secondly, we're going to look back through the text and see that Jesus doesn't just tell us how to think, but he also tells us what to do in the midst of our anxiety. Jesus opens with this command, do not be anxious or do not worry in the NIV. And he's going to give us three main reasons why we shouldn't worry, why we shouldn't let our lives be taken over by anxiety and fear of what might happen. But I want you to notice right off the bat how Jesus tells us 
those things. He doesn't yell at us and tell us that we're doing something wrong and we just need to stop it. He doesn't drop nuggets of wisdom or technique from heaven and say, in seven easy steps, you too can live a worry-free life. No, instead what Jesus does is he asks us questions. Did you notice that in this text? The text is dominated with questions. And each one of them has a similar tone. They are all questions with the tone of, don't you know? Jesus isn't giving us new information in these questions that he is asking us. Instead, he is telling us to reflect on what we already know to be true. And this is important because it highlights one of the great difficulties of the Christian life. Jesus isn't talking to unbelievers here. Notice that. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount is given to disciples, those who trust in Jesus to save them from their sins, as Matthew told us in chapter 1. Unbelievers are listening in the crowd, but the promises here are not for unbelievers, they're for his disciples. And he isn't really contrasting this with the false righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees like he's been doing everywhere else. Instead, he is now turning and talking to his disciples about the implications of everything that he's just said. This passage begins with, therefore. He is drawing a conclusion, an application on everything he has said to us about rewards and treasure in heaven and who your master is in those previous verses. And he addresses his disciples with an interesting title in this passage. Did you notice that at the end of verse 30? He says, Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? That last phrase is all one word in the Greek. It's a title. Jesus calls us the little faith ones. He's not talking to people with no faith, who don't trust in Jesus. No, he talks here about the care of our Father in heaven. He's talking to people with faith, but with weak faith. Immature faith. Faith that has a lot more growing to do. In other words, every one of us who is walking in the Christian life. And this is the great difficulty of the Christian life for all of us. Your theology on paper and your theology in life often don't match up. You can read a book about the glory of God and the treasures found in fellowship with Him. And then when you feel like you might want to read the Bible and pray to enjoy that fellowship, Netflix sounds a little more enticing. You can know that sin is the thief of joy. And that Jesus says He came to give us abundant life, but still decide that gossiping about someone else will make you feel better. Or dabbling in pornography is going to give you what you want. You can know that your treasure is secure in heaven. Maybe you sang with passion last week, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise, Thou mine inheritance, now and always. And you still spent four hours on Amazon this week looking up stuff to fill you up. What we believe on paper 
and what we believe in practice often do not line up. And so the great task of the Christian life is often not, let me pick up another book on another new topic that will bring me greater insight. But instead, I need a refresher on the truths that I first learned when I was 10. This is what Jesus is doing. He's looking at those closest to him, his disciples, you, me, the ones walking with him. And he's seeing us enveloped in worry and anxiety about what is to come. And with compassion and pity and love, he says, oh, you of little faith, don't you know? Don't you remember how quickly you forget? Let me remind you of what is true and strengthen your faith. Let me bolster that tiny trust you have put in God. Let me free you from dependence upon yourself or the unstable ground of chance and let me set you on the rock of God your Father. Jesus does that in this passage in three ways. First, He reminds you that your heavenly Father will take care of you. Read again with me verses 26 and 28 to 31. He says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? We might think it is odd that Jesus is mentioning food and clothing when he's talking about anxiety. I want you to notice that this is not anxiety over our decisions. Are we going to eat out tomorrow night, or are we staying home? Should I buy the jeans from Old Navy or from Target? The worries in this passage are not about decisions, they are about provision. This is a culture without refrigerators and Tupperware. Eating was a daily task and a daily struggle. And I mentioned a few weeks back that in that culture, clothing was often a piece of their security. That outer garment, the cloak, would have been their protection from bad weather, their blanket to keep them warm at night. The worries of this passage are about provision, Am I going to have what I need? Jesus makes two comparisons. This is what is sometimes called a how much more argument. Jesus takes something observable and shows you the truth of it. And then he compares you to that thing and says, how much more is that true for you? The first is about birds and food. Jesus points out that they don't do any storing or long-term planning, and yet they always have enough. God always provides for them. The second is a comparison with lilies and clothing. 
Jesus says that they don't even work. They neither toil nor spin. And yet they are more beautifully dressed than Solomon, the richest of the kings of Israel. Now it's important to say that Jesus is not telling us not to plan. The Proverbs are filled with praise for the ants because the ants are wise and store food for winter. This passage isn't an excuse for laziness or flying by the seat of your pants. The Puritan pastor John Gill said it well. Christ does not forbid labor to maintain, support, and preserve this life. Nor does He forbid all thought and care about it. But He forbids all anxious, immoderate, perplexing, and distressing thoughts and cares, such as arise from hesitancy and unbelief and tend to despair. Jesus is not saying that we shouldn't be planning. The whole Bible teaches Christians to be thoughtful and to plan ahead and even to strategize about the best way to do things. But notice those words of John Gill, distressing thoughts and cares, such as arise from hesitancy and unbelief and tend to despair. This is not sober planning that Jesus is talking about. This is anxious spiraling. Maybe you do that laying in bed at 3 o'clock in the morning. Or maybe you do that with an Excel spreadsheet in front of you, stressfully balancing the budget again. Notice the root problem, just like the problem has been for this whole section, is unbelief. Living as if God were not there, or not in control, or not good and loving toward you. The key point Jesus actually makes here is about your value. Jesus is showing you how well God takes care of the other parts of his creation. But sparrows are not created in the image of God. And the Father didn't send his Son to rescue lost lilies. It's not that God doesn't care about his creation, but he has made crystal clear that humans are more important to him than plants and animals, especially those humans whom Jesus came to save. Look at how God cares for the birds and plants. Are you not of more value than they? He asks. The supreme way that God has shown you how much he values you is by sending Jesus to save you from your sins and reconcile you to him. So in Romans 8, Paul asks us a similar question. He asks us if we understand the implications of that. Verse 32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Brothers and sisters, do you really think that your heavenly Father is going to leave you high and dry? Do you really believe that the one who sent his son from heaven to die for you is going to forget you? No, he will give you everything you need for life and godliness. He takes care of the birds and the flowers. How much more does he value you? 
Second way that Jesus teaches you not to be anxious is that he reminds you that your anxiety isn't going to accomplish anything. Read verses 27 and 34 again with me. He says, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? In verse 34, he says, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Verse 27 seems like a mean or sarcastic question at first. But Jesus again is calling us to sober reflection. Again, the question is not, is it wrong to plan ahead? He's not saying that if you notice a problem in your body that you shouldn't go to the doctor because, well, we can't add a single hour to our life. No, the question he is asking us to reflect on is, who's in charge? Who is in control? Who is it who holds your life? We live in anxiety when we live as if our life is in our hands. We think of ourselves like one of those people at a circus spinning ten plates at a time, frantically running back and forth to each plate to keep it going, never resting, never stopping. Because if we do, who will keep everything going? Jesus asks us, do you really think it all depends on you? Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. We're told in Hebrews 1 verse 3 that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. One great test of whether we believe this is found in Psalm 127. Verses 1 to 2 say, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Brothers and sisters, do you sleep? Do you lay down in bed at a decent hour and rest knowing that you are not upholding the universe. You are not upholding your family. You are not upholding your business or your friends or this church. You are not even upholding your whole life. The God who loves you and cares for you has all of that in His all-powerful hands. The third reminder that Jesus gives us why we don't have to be anxious about our life is that your life is not confined to this world. Look with me at verse 25 and then verses 32 and 33. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus brings up the Gentiles again. It's the third time that He's made a comparison with them in the Sermon on the Mount. And remember, Gentiles in that time 
are pagans. They are people who don't believe in God. They are people who reject everything Jesus has just said about treasure that is stored up for us in heaven. They are people who think that everything good is confined to this world and to this life. And so what do they do? They are obsessed with getting everything they can out of this life. We do need to soberly acknowledge what Jesus is not saying in these verses. He is not saying, he is saying rather, that our Heavenly Father will take care of us. He will give us everything we need for life and godliness. But Jesus is not promising that God will extend your life indefinitely. He isn't promising that Christians never die. The reason not to worry is not that a lump couldn't possibly be cancer, or that you couldn't possibly lose your job, or that something couldn't possibly happen to one of your kids. The Heidelberg Catechism that we confessed earlier does not say that not a hair can fall from your head, period. It says not a hair can fall from your head without the will of your Heavenly Father. Nothing bad will happen to you apart from God's good and loving will toward you. But bad things will happen. In this life, you will have trouble. Ultimately, if the Lord delays His return, all of us in this room will one day die. But Jesus says to us that there is something more important, more long-lasting and more enduring than this life. It is the kingdom of God. He is creating a priority, just as He did in verses 19 to 21. Treasure on earth is not a bad thing. God has created everything for our enjoyment, but treasure on earth is secondary to treasure in heaven. Jesus says that the anxiety that so envelops our lives makes sense if you think this life is all there is. But it does not make sense if you understand that your life is hidden with Christ. Brothers and sisters, you know this. This is not new information to you. You believe that your life is a speck on the line of eternity. Your security and hope and comfort and your eternal life cannot be threatened. They are not in flux. They are not in your hands. They are secure with Christ in heaven. Do not be anxious about them, but fix your eyes on your true life in the kingdom of Christ. Those are the three reasons, the three reminders Jesus gives us to free us from our anxiety. If you are a Christian, you already know those things to be true. He is calling you to dwell on those truths and to let your theology on paper be the theology of your heart, and so to rest in Him. But in the time we have remaining, I want you to see that Jesus doesn't only give you reminders. He doesn't only speak to your mind and tell you what to think. He also gives you something to do in the midst of your anxiety. Jesus gives practical steps for how to drill those truths down deep into your heart. Two of these steps are explicitly in the text, and one of them is there implicitly. First, Jesus tells us to look at creation. 
There are six commands in this passage. Three of them are do not be anxious. But two of the others are look at the birds of the air and consider the lilies of the field. What an odd thing to tell someone who is worrying. Jesus, don't you realize that my life stands on the edge of a cliff? I don't have time to look at the birds. But our Savior knows what we need. He's telling us to slow down and observe. Observe the world around you that your Father has created. And what is amazing about what Jesus is doing is that he is connecting God's common grace with the promises of his saving grace. Common grace is all that God is doing to uphold the world, all his creatures, not just the people that Jesus died to save. But by observing that common grace, the birds and the squirrels and rabbits and flowers and trees that he gives life and beauty and provision to, he teaches us to call to mind the promises of his special saving grace. So every time you look at a budding flower, he teaches you to think on his merciful care. Every time you see the sun come up in the morning, he teaches you to remember that his mercies are new every morning. Every time you see a squirrel eating a nut or a bird eating a worm, he teaches you to hear his words. How much more will your heavenly father feed you Oh, you of little faith, of how much more value are you than they? When you are spiraling, when you are in a state of worry, walk outside. Look at the way God cares for His creation. Look at the birds of the air and the flowers of the field and remember that you are His beloved child. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The second practical step Jesus gives us is implicit in the text. Did you see what he said in verse 32? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Does that phrase at the end sound familiar? It should, because Jesus just said the exact same thing about 20 verses earlier. Remember his teaching on prayer. Just before Jesus teaches us the Lord's Prayer, he said, Do not be like the Gentiles, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. God has given you something to do with your anxieties and your worries. He doesn't just say, stop it. And he doesn't just tell you to think a different way. No, he says, cast all your anxieties on God because he cares for you. He says, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. When worries flood your mind on your bed at night, Pray to your heavenly Father. And because anxiety demands speed, slow down and recite the Lord's Prayer. 
As you recite it, Jesus is teaching you to think on, to dwell on what it is that you are saying. Our Father who art in heaven. God is not some disinterested deity. He is your loving Father. Think about the compassion that a father has for his child. That is a faint glimmer of the compassion that God, your Father, has for you in your suffering. And remember where he is. He is in heaven, ruling and reigning over all things. He isn't subject to the ups and downs of this world like you and I. He isn't surprised by what came your way today or what is coming tomorrow. In all his goodness and grace, he is in complete control of your life. Pray like that in your anxiety. Like a child does to a father, cast all your anxieties on God. The third practical step Jesus tells us to do in the midst of our anxiety may not seem practical to us. Verses 32 and 33 again say, For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Part of seeking first the kingdom of God comes in the prayer that we just mentioned. The structure of the Lord's Prayer begins with cares and concerns about God's kingdom. And then it moves on to our own needs and desires. Jesus doesn't ignore or diminish your needs, but he does put them in their proper place. Seek God's kingdom first. Set your mind on the things of God and your worries may be put in their proper place. But this isn't just about prayer. It's also about action. When you are tempted to worry, put your focus and your energy towards God's kingdom that is bigger than yourself. Care for those in need. Build up others who are brokenhearted. Share the truths of the gospel with your neighbor or coworker. Get outside of yourself and pursue the things of God's kingdom. Those are the three places Jesus tells us to go. Look at creation, pray to your Father, and set your focus on His kingdom. In that way, Jesus tells us that the truths we believe on paper will slowly sink in to our hearts. Beloved, Jesus sees you in the midst of your worry and in the midst of your anxiety. He sees your sleepless nights and your tears over what might come tomorrow. And he doesn't roll his eyes in sarcasm or yell at you in frustration. He looks on you in compassion and says, Oh, you of little faith, put your trust in your Father. He cares for the birds and the flowers. How much more valuable to him are you than they? Would you all pray with me? Father, we pray that your word would have effect, that it would be living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, cutting to the division of soul and marrow. Lord, we pray that your word would root itself in our hearts so that we might not live as the pagans do, thinking that this world is all there is and that no one is caring for us but ourselves.
We pray instead that we would believe what we say. That we would know that you are our Heavenly Father who cares for us. And that we would be freed from the worries and anxieties that envelop us as we look to you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.